Welcome to the Denver United Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Rendell. All right, good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming to church on this blustery, snowy day. Enjoyed the little glimpse of spring that we got before winter came back. Um, not done with winter because I'm not done with skiing. I don't know about you, but uh, it takes snow to ski on, so happy for the snow. Good morning and welcome to all of you who are worshiping with us from home. Morning, Mom. Love you. Alpha, you keep hearing us talking about it. It starts this week on Tuesday evening, and it's all about the questions, right? It saddens me to think that church is a place where people would be less likely to come or think um, that, that they could come to talk about the questions that, that plague all of our souls. Why am I here? Is there more? Is God real? Is what I learned in Sunday school and was rammed on my throat, is any of it true or anything like that? Too many of us fear asking those questions in church because we're afraid we're going to get wrapped on the knuckles by some angry religious person where Jesus welcomed the questions. Jesus asked vastly more questions than he answered. And this ought to be a place where we can dignify and honor one another and talk about the hard questions without feeling the religious pressure to answer them all or push somebody into um, a place of understanding where God hasn't given them grace to be yet and just allow one another to be where we are. So as we've talked about, I hope you'll invite, if you haven't already, someone from your work, from your home, from your gym, your neighborhood, your apartment complex, your dorm, or wherever it is that you find yourself during the week and simply invite them to dinner and a conversation. It's a 15 or 20 minute Netflix quality documentary video that does the heavy lifting of sharing what it is that we believe. And so you don't have to come ready to, to play stump the chump and answer all their questions. You just have to be there in the questions with them and care. And then there'll be a good meal and a safe place to talk about um, the things that really are on everybody's mind and a little more after the two years of hell that we've lived through. And so if you find that that's you and you come to church, but you're like, you know, honestly, I don't know. I don't know if I really believe. I don't know if I, if, if I feel like I'm too far down the road to let people know I have doubts or I'm afraid the whole thing is a sham or, or something like that. But what would they think of me if I said it? Alpha is a safe place for you to bring your friends. Alpha is a safe place for you. So simply go online, denverunited.com, sign up. It'll uh, just help us prepare the food and be ready for you. And we look forward to walking that journey with many in our community as Jesus holds out the love and the hope that he always has and gives us grace uh, to honor, honor and meet one another where we are. Sound good? You with me? All right, go sign up for Alpha. Look forward to seeing a bunch of you and meeting your friends. We're going to jump into the Word, continuing in our series, Truly I Tell You, looking at Matthew 25 and simply asking the question about those strong and shockingly clear words Jesus spoke just before he went to the cross. What if he meant it? What if he literally meant what he said and it wasn't a you can move a mountain or cut off your hand hyperbole. What would that mean for us and the way we follow him, the way we understand faith and our life expressing that faith? What would we do differently? 
In looking at the text from another angle this week as we move through it, I was reminded of the year 2001. I was new to pastoral ministry, had spent four years of my young adult life in the army paying back my college scholarship and found myself for the first time standing on a platform in front of a congregation full of people teaching the word. I spoke about what was the most meaningful passage in my life and faith formation up until this point, and that's the story of the persistent widow. Some of you know this story. Jesus encounters people talking about prayer and tells a story about a widow who goes seeking justice for her plight. And the judge, though he may not be good and her cause may not be just, says because of her persistence, he's going to grant her request. And all the more, it would seem, with a judge who is just and a cause that is good. How much more will God value us when we simply persevere in prayer? And so passionate as I was as a 26-year-old first-time preacher, I stood in front of a congregation of a few peers and a lot of people older and wiser than me who had been reading about the persistent widow and trying to put her lesson into practice since I was like in diapers. And I passionately said, that I was going for it, man. I was bringing it all. You know, you preach like you may never get another shot when it's your first time. And I was like, that widow, she planted her old wrinkly butt on the do- judge, on the doorstep of the judge, and she didn't move. And it was a moment where I get, got all my rhetorical flair and built up, and I was waiting for the yeah. And instead, I looked out at a bunch of people who were looking at me going, did you just say old wrinkly butt in church? <clears throat> And so I kept going and moved right on past it, finished the sermon, poured my heart out. I was asked to do the first service, which was the smaller service, because it was my first time, and I guess they were keeping me on a short leash. And afterward, I come down, and my boss and several of my um, colleagues were there, and um, they're like, good job. And my boss is like, you do realize that it is the people connected to many old wrinkly butts in the room who pay your salary, right? I was like, ha, 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 And then as I was like getting ready to get it and think, well, that was the shortest preaching career in pastoral ministry history. One of our elders, an older gentleman, um, who always kind of took a little bit of a shine to me, came up and just walked right up into the circle. And he looked at me and they were in, in the middle of letting me know how impertinent my my remarks were when he said, and I thought, oh no, because there's no doubt that among his many virtues, a firm buttocks is probably not one of them. And, he, and he's like, I mean, just by virtue of his age, I'm sure he, you know, walked and kept himself fit. <laughs> That's it right there. That's what was happening. That is a moment in my life. It's a moment of many moments in my life. Um, and, and I thought, oh man, this is, this is going from bad to worse. And he looked at me, then he looked at my boss, the, the lead pastor. And he's like, Rob, that was from the heart of God. And Ted, I think you need to have him do that again in the next service. And over the years, I've thought about that day a lot 
and my humanness, my deep brokenness and how God works through and often in spite of me and us. But you know what stood out probably more than anything as that day fell into history and perspective was that older brother in the Lord. I think of him, he's, he's with Jesus now. And I, and I look at him in my mind and I think, you gave me dignity. That's what you did. It was a moment where I was undignified. And it would have been just and appropriate to let me know it. And you gave me dignity. And man, don't we all need that sometimes. So that's our subject this morning. We're in Matthew 25, Jesus teaching on the Mount of Olives as he's returning from the day in Jerusalem leading up to the day that would change the world. <clears throat> Teaching his disciples, he said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when? When did we ever see you hungry, feed you thirsty, give you a drink or a stranger and show you hospitality? When did we see you naked and give you clothing? or sick or in prison and visit you, and the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And the big idea of this passage that we are developing over these weeks is that compassion for the lowest, the least, the last, compassion for the ones that Jesus calls in his society and in ours the least of these, that's love for Jesus. That is love for Jesus. And last week we looked at the stranger at our door and what it means to invite him in. Today our key verse is 36. Jesus says, I was naked and you gave me clothing. And at first read, two things stand out. One is it seems that there is a theme of, of, of exposure <laughs> this morning, which was unintentional. Uh, in terms of the opening story. Uh, but secondly, that it's possible to take this, uh, this verse or a particular example of Jesus' statement that I would advocate as literal and understand it that way alongside the food and the drink. I was in need and you provided, right? We talked about that in week one. I was hungry, I was thirsty, and you provided my need. But then moreover, I was a stranger and you invited me in. You walked with me. And it could be that he's going back to the need, or it could be that Jesus is getting at something broader. Certainly that encompasses a physical need. But uh, by way of a little bit of context 
for Jesus' culture, let's look at some scripture to understand what they might have heard. You know, when we're trying to understand scripture, the first thing we want to do as intellectually honest students of the Bible is try to understand what Jesus was saying to the people to whom he was originally speaking. And then secondly, what does that mean to us today? And so in first century Judaism, people would have heard that saying against this backdrop, Genesis chapter 2, the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, whom God had just created, were both naked, but they felt no shame. This was before the fall of humanity in sin. So nakedness was just a descriptor. It was because it was too warm for clothing, but they felt no shame associated with that. Then, of course, they ate the forbidden fruit, and in chapter 3, at that moment, their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed the fig leaves together, clothed themselves, and we all know how that went. So from the point of humanity's fall in sin, shame began to be associated with nakedness. This repeats as a theme all through Scripture. For the sake of time, I'll just give you a couple of instances, and you can research this further for yourself if you like. In Micah chapter 1, God's speaking of the waywardness of his covenant people, Israel, and he says, my people's wound is too deep to heal. It's reached into Judah, even to the gates of Jerusalem. And so in verse 11, go, he says, as captives into exile, naked and ashamed. Now, it could be that some of those who left Jerusalem for Babylonian captivity, as was foretold by the prophet here through, uh, by God, uh, they actually were stripped of their clothing. But I think the point is they were at a point of lowness such that shame covered them. And nakedness is a metaphor for that shame. In Revelation, Jesus says, look, I'll come again as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready, metaphoric clothing, yeah? So they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. To Jesus' hearers, this is the way this would have gone, I would suggest, by way of culture, context, and understanding his passage and what he was relying on his hearers to understand. To his hearers, nakedness equals shame, and clothing equals dignity. And so in saying, I was naked and you clothed me, Jesus, I believe, is employing a culture metaphor that his hearers would have understood implicitly, but maybe to us doesn't land quite as naturally. Look in the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 8. We're going to look at two stories back to back, an extraordinary passage, because they make one phenomenally significant point. Verse 20, 26, we're in Luke 8. Go with me. They sailed, Jesus and his disciples, to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So they were over on the, the Israel side of this really big lake that Jesus is perpetually sailing back and forth across. They ministered all day and into the night. And then there was a storm. Jesus is in the boat. He's trying to get a little shut eye. His disciples are freaking out. They wake him up. He calms the storm. Even the sleep he did get was in a boat on a sea. So bottom line is the dude's got to be tired, right? Fully God, he was also fully man who needed, among other things, rest. 
I don't know about you, but when I've been pulled out from every direction and get a fitful night of, night of sleep afterward, I am not on my A game the next morning. Well, that next morning, they landed on the shores of the Gerasenes, and Jesus stepped out on the land. And the first thing that happens, there met a, a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, this man, first thing we know about him, beyond that he had demons, first descriptor, for a long time, he had worn no clothes. Why is Luke so intent on including that detail? Like, ah, too much information. I don't need to see this in my mind's eye, right? It's like you when I was talking about old wrinkly backsides. You're like, too much. That's how this could come across. But he makes the point that he had worn no clothes for some time and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So he was homeless and naked. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. I would suggest that Luke, like Jesus, expected his hearers to, and readers to understand this guy's life was buried in shame. He was the lowest. He was the least of society. So this man comes running up to Jesus, full of demons, full of crazy, naked, living in a graveyard, probably not at the peak of his hygiene, and falls in front of Jesus and was like, ah! And that's how he's welcomed to the region of the Gerasenes after such an exhausting night. This man had been banished from town. We learn later they had tried to chain him up. It didn't work. So he's sent out to the graveyard. And there he lived out his life, naked and broken. And society did what society does, right? Heap shame on broken people by isolating and rejecting or by just ignoring them completely. Wish I could say that our society has evolved, but... We do the same thing, don't we? We don't say shame, shame, shame on you, but we heap it on people by isolating, rejecting, or simply ignoring the broken ones. Jesus heals the man. And there's a story of the demons going into the pigs, and you can read about that in Luke chapter 8. The people in the town are amazed, but for the sake of our study, skip to verse 35. They came out to see what had happened because they heard the story of the pig farmers. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus. First descriptor of what the people saw was what? What's that word? Clothed. And in his right mind. The naked crazy guy is clothed and in his right mind. The guy whom the world had shamed, Jesus gave dignity. And in Matthew 25, Jesus is counting on it. He's counting on it when he says, I was naked and you clothed me, that his disciples were there for that, front row seat, watching this scene go down, thinking, exhausted as Jesus was, surely he would just say to the guy, you know, not now, personal boundary. They're remembering, and when he says, I was naked and you clothed me, they're remembering the guy who was literally naked. 
And then Jesus clothed him. The man who was the lowest, the least, and the most undignified. And Jesus gave him dignity. You can bet it when he says this in Matthew 25, they're thinking of that dude. And Jesus says, remember that guy? I was that guy. What'd you do? In Isaiah 54, God prophesies at the people's lowest, buried in shame themselves, in exile and bondage to the Babylonian Empire. And through his prophet, God says to them, Fear not, for you will no longer live in shame. Remember, he prophesied that they were going to go away in shame, but he says, you're not going to stay that way. Don't be afraid. There is no more disgrace from you. And see, this is part of the holism of the gospel. We think of the gospel as the transaction of, hey, you need to get saved. Fall on your knees and repent. You fall on your knees. You come forward. Everyone claps. You say a prayer. We do something over you. And then there's a transaction that's occurred. Jesus' salvation is a holistic salvation. He says, I came to bind up the broken." hearted and proclaim freedom for the captives, to preach good news to the poor. And Jesus' gospel, Jesus' salvation, it is wrapped up in dignity. He says, you won't stay in your shame. And aren't you grateful that Jesus has lifted you out of it? Okay, continuous narrative. This is the passage that immediately follows that story of the man with the demons and the pigs. Luke chapter 8 in verse 40, it says, the people chased him out of town because they were afraid. So Jesus got in the boat with his disciples and sailed back over that lake across which it seems he's perpetually sailing. So on the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed him because they'd been waiting for him. There was a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, and he came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. Now, this is a man who couldn't contrast more starkly from the guy who waited for them on the other side, right? So this is clearly something that the Bible author is wanting you to see. Jesus sails this way across the lake, and he's met by a guy who is one massive ball of inner damage, the guy that nobody wants. He gets in the boat, sails back to this side of the sea, and he's met by a guy who's the toast of the town, the guy that everybody wants at their party, Jairus. Now, Jairus, to add to his list of accolades, isn't the insufferably haughty and smug socialite. He's the one that actually humbles himself before Jesus and asks him for help. This is the guy, this is the A-plus Christian. This is the guy that you hope for in your church. Jairus humbles himself, pleads with Jesus to come and heal his daughter because she was 12 and she was dying and Jesus went with them and he was surrounded by the crowds. Lots of witnesses to what was going down. Jesus was always aware both of what he was doing and who he was doing it in front of. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, the whole crowd's pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt 
healing power go out from me. And when the woman realized that she couldn't stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. And the whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith made you well. I didn't do it. Your faith did. So Jesus said, go in peace. It's delicate to talk about, but difficult to overlook that in a different way than the man in the region of the Gerasenes with the legion of demons, this woman represented another low point of indignity in Jesus' culture. The fact that she had the issue that she had in health made her unclean in their religious um, Old Testament code of conduct. And so she would never have been able to rejoin society. During her period, a woman was instructed to have space. That's difficult for us to understand, both in modern Western convention and in the New Covenant era. But that's the way that it was in their culture. There was also a lower social standing by virtue of her being a woman, but she would never have been allowed to be in, accepted in society. She would have been known to be a perpetual outcast. That's why she tries to sneak in through the crowd, crawling on her hands and knees perhaps because she's grabbing the hem of his robe and just touch it so that she can remain out of sight because of the indignity assigned to her. And Jesus did what he does. He went out of his way. He went out of his way to dignify the undignified. And he asks us to do the same. Do you remember the greatest showman? Like B plus grade movie, the acting, the like borderline Disney high school musical characters, songs. Um, Zendaya was surprisingly good. Like, I remember watching her as a kid in my kids' Disney shows. I'm like, dang, she's not bad in musical theater. But that what made that movie, like, make you want to cry in spite of yourself is that it, it was so much like Jesus. He was so much like Jesus, wasn't he? He didn't take the undignifieds of society that society made freaks and made fun of and say, hey, you know what? Come back and hide where no one will see you. That would be one level of care. He turned the tables on society. He flipped the script and said, no, that which you have said is unlovely is actually what makes people beautiful. And he gave them dignity and celebrated them. And it always chokes me up. High school musical elements notwithstanding. That's how Jesus was with everyone he met. I love how he interacted with the woman in this passage. First, he allowed himself to be interrupted, right? He was on a mission. He had already committed to go with Jairus. And he was with somebody, not only who he knew was important, but who he knew the crowd knew was important. This was the ruler of the synagogue. This guy was like the mayor. And Jesus was going with him. But yet when he knew that power had gone out of him, he allowed himself to be interrupted. Verse 46, he said, who touched me? He draws attention to it. Could have let it just go down. And Jesus insisted on highlighting lowlifes in the world's eyes. 
Verse 46, he said, someone deliberately touched me. His disciples are like Jesus. Everyone's touching each other. How could you say that? But he knew that it had happened. Now, being in very nature God, Jesus also knew exactly who touched him, exactly why power went out of him and what it did. Nothing goes out from God except which he sins, yeah? So Jesus can't authentically be trying to discern whom he inadvertently healed. Can we agree that that's probably not what's going on because God knows all things? So why is he making a point of this? Is he trying to run this woman up the flagpole? Is he trying to add to her indignity and embarrassment? She surely must have thought so at first. But he didn't call her out to shame her. He called her out to give her dignity in front of the crowd. It wasn't enough to simply dignify her by healing her in secret. He wanted the whole crowd to see. The whole crowd, verse 47, heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. And before the crowd was able to form a judgment of how impertinent it was that she would violate the laws of Moses and come touch the rabbi, unclean as she was, before they even had time to protest, Jesus said, daughter, it was you. It was your faith that healed you. And what he had continued to say in castigating the Pharisees and religious elites was that they lacked faith. And he said, this woman, in their eyes, lowest of the low, she exemplified faith. He gave her dignity. 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul observes using the human body as a metaphor for how we relate to one another. The parts we regard of our body as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require such special care. So God has put the body together such that, listen, extra honor and care be given to those parts that have less dignity. This is how God intended it. Our culture teaches us something different. It teaches us from birth to value the ones who are going places, who are successful and exemplary, to value the ones from whom we can derive benefit. Now, as Christians, we probably don't step on the worthless ones, but we might step around them. My question is, is why? It's for me as well as you. I'd like to ask you to think about something for a second. Maybe close your eyes and just imagine. Who is the naked one in your world? It would be easy to misread this passage as primarily about clothing and think, well, nobody, we're in America, nobody's naked. We're good on this one. 
didn't see you naked and not clothe you, Jesus. At least one I get a passing grade on. Who's the undignified one in your world? The one who is awkward or annoying. The one who is extra needy or socially impertinent or emotionally broken the one for whom it requires extra grace. Remember years ago, there was, um, there was a parent in the bleachers. It was that person to me. Mari and I sit in a lot of bleachers watching a lot of boys' basketball games and have over the years. Hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands. And there was one parent that stands out. I mean, there's all kinds of parents, you know. There's one that stands out and um, just socially off, you know. Just says annoying, impertinent things kind of to get attention and looks around to see if anyone agrees. And people laugh along <laughs> a couple of times, but then that makes him turn to you and try to say it to you. So then what people end up doing is just pretending he's literally not there. And after about three games, there's this maybe 10-foot open space around him, and he just sits there alone, saying it and looking around for people to agree or maybe affirm his identity or maybe just simply acknowledge his existence. And I remember, and I confessed, being so annoyed and thinking, I'm in the people business. I've got grace for lots of different people. I do not have grace for this guy. He annoys me like crazy. And I'm going to, if I sit near him, I'm, I, can't be, I can't be responsible for what I might say. Right? I, might, I, I might just burst out in some, some snippy remark and cut him down to size and make others laugh, which, of course, I didn't do. But what I did do was just join in the distance. And then the Holy Spirit convicted me. At one point, I read, I was reading through the Bible and I read this passage about what you did for the least, the least of these you did for me. And then what you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. And I thought, the thought of leaving Jesus sitting there undignified. And so I, I, I went and sat next to him. First, I didn't want it to look too obvious, so at first I just kind of made eye contact when he looked around and everyone else looked away, and he was like, yeah, yeah, that was a tough call, man, yeah, you're right. And then started by like, I'd say something to him, maybe not something cutting on the refs or the other team, or, but just be like, hey, that's a great player. Hey, look at your boy, good rebound. Yeah, and, and he was just, he brightened that somebody acknowledged him. I'm nobody, I'm just a fellow parent, but that somebody acknowledged him. And then over the course of the weeks, I just started sitting next to him and tried to befriend him. And the truth is he never stopped being annoying or started being the guy that I want to watch like the finals with. Um, but I did have Jesus rebuke my heart and then give me grace enough to see that he was a human. Who's that for you? Who is the naked one? The story of 
the man with the hundred demons, has one astounding detail that I think is often overlooked. If you'll go back there with me, verse 29, it says, though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he'd broken his chains and been driven by the demon into solitary places. So dysfunctional and damaged was he. Jesus, when this man comes running up to him, probably isn't saying, welcome to the region of the Gerasenes. We're so glad to have you. But whatever he's doing and however he's acting and repelling and however bad he's smelling, he comes running up to Jesus. And Jesus says, what's your name? Now, a lot of people will tell you, well, he was talking to the demon because he was going to drive out the demon. But it tells us he had already told the demon he had to go. Does Jesus says, what fellowship has Christ and the devil? I don't know that Jesus is wanting to make friends with the captain of the legion of demons. It is very much Jesus' way to see the human, though. Now, the demon answers him, and Jesus then goes on to talk with the man. But I think what's happening is this guy comes up and he's like, and he goes, Jesus, what's your name? It's nice to meet you. And in that simple act of dignity, he demonstrated the gospel and he demonstrated that in God's eyes, every person is made a glorious creation in God's image for eternal fellowship with his creator and that there is no throwaway person. There are no throwaway people. There are no accidents. There are no mistakes. And there are no lost causes. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory writes, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. Jesus said, truly I tell you, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did to me. That person, that ball of inner damage waiting for exhausted Jesus on the shores of the region of the Gerasenes. That homeless person that you walk past. Jesus says that person is my brother. That person is my sister. And friends, a hallmark of Jesus' followers is that we see the ones the world may pass right on over. We see them. We can't solve all of their problems. But Jesus is saying, when we see the undignified and give them dignity, we are doing it for him. The homeless, the elderly, the disabled, 
the challenging and off-putting and objectionable and broken. When we acknowledge God's glorious creation, we acknowledge God. And what a simple way to live the gospel. I think sometimes I'm hesitant to acknowledge a homeless person of whom we have many in, our, in the area of our church uh, because I'm afraid I'm going to get roped into something or I'm not going to be able to meet their need or I can't solve homelessness in America. And I don't know if Jesus is asking me to solve homelessness in America, but he's asking me to see Jeff. So when, when I encounter a homeless person and, and they're needing or not needing anything, very often they're not asking me for anything, I found that a simple response from which I've sensed God's pleasure is, what's your name? It never ceases to surprise the person I'm speaking with that I would care to ask, that I would acknowledge that they have a name, that they have a mom, that they're a person from somewhere. Sometimes when somebody's hungry, instead of giving them a a gift card, I'll say, "Would would you walk over to... Wendy's with me, I'll buy you something. Also, you know, we've all learned to be cautious about giving out cash because we don't want to help in a way that hurts, like we talked about last week. So in the spirit of a stranger and inviting them in, I'll say, you want to walk over to Wendy's, and in the course of that, I'll ask a question or two. What's your life like? Or where are you from? Or whatever. Just having a conversation with a person who's treated as subhuman, that is ordinary and human, I've found that that's more meaningful than the big bacon classic I buy. And friends, when we see the least of these, we're seeing Jesus. And when we love them, we're loving Jesus. And I think this is part of what it means to be us. Amen? Will you stand with me? Father in heaven, thank you for my friends. Thank you for your work in our lives, in our city. Thank you that as we sang this morning where we can feel overwhelmed by by the problems of society and find it difficult to engage problematic people. Thank you that you never stop working, that you never stop loving them and you never stop drawing by your grace. Would you give us grace to demonstrate the gospel by giving dignity. And Father, thank you for the ways that you have given dignity to each of us when we have been that person and maybe didn't even realize it. Lord, let us be ambassadors of your kingdom and of your peace. I thank you for my friends. I bless them. Let this week be full of your joy, your peace, and your kingdom come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Love you all. Have an amazing week. We hope you've been encouraged and challenged this week by God's Word. For more information about our church, events, or to simply submit a prayer request, visit us online at denverunited.com.